For God so loved the world. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 3. So this morning I want to start off by uh, kind of telling you a story that I think all of us can identify with. And when you hear it, you might say, I don't know how I identify with that story, but but I think you'll understand in just a minute. So we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of this story that really captured the imagination of the, imagination of the entire world. Because uh, back in June and July of 2018, you probably heard about the soccer team in Thailand who uh, got trapped inside a cave. So it turns out they had a practice or a game or something, uh, and they went on a hike into a cave. Their coach, who was 25, led, I believe it was about 11, uh, 12 members of the team uh, into this cave on a little hike. Well, while they were in the cave, a torrential downpour happened, and it just kept raining and raining and raining. Again, you can identify with that this week, right? I knew you could identify with this story. So it was raining and raining, and they were in the cave, and the water rose so much that they could not get back to the mouth of the cave. In fact, as it started to rise higher and higher, they kept going deeper and deeper into the cave, trying to find somewhere that the water would not reach. Um, and no one knew where they were. All that we had was a pile of cell phones and backpacks right outside the cave. So efforts to locate that group were hampered by the rising water levels and strong currents, and there was no contact made for over a week. So that rescue effort to reach these folks and try to find out if they were still alive expanded into this massive operation. It says this, that there were, um, uh, I believe, 10,000 people working to help rescue these kids. More than a hundred divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from a hundred different government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, seven ambulances, and more than 700 diving cylinders. So all this effort went into trying to find these kids who were lost. Well, what happened is, uh, on July 2, after advancing through narrow passages and muddy waters, two British divers finally found that group alive. They were on an elevated rock about 2.5 miles into the cave. Can you imagine that surviving for over a month in pitch black without any communication with the outdoor world, outside world? So rescue organizers had done all this uh, work to do this. They pumped floodwaters. Uh, they didn't know whether they should wait till the end of the monsoon season, but eventually they ended up sending these divers in to pull the, the, the kids out. And as you probably remember, one of the divers died in the process, uh, gave his life to rescue these kids, uh, and another diver died about a year later of a lung a disease that developed because of the water uh, that he had been in. So why do I tell you this story? Why did I say you could identify with it? It's because this, this is a story about a group of people who is trapped in darkness, completely hopeless, lost, and with no hope of survival at all, unless a rescuer came. And that's exactly what happened. They were rescued. And that's the topic of our passage today, actually. In this encounter that we see in, in uh, John chapter 3, this encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus tells this guy, this guy named Nicodemus, he tells him, you need to be rescued. And Nicodemus says, do I? Do I really need to be rescued? I don't really need that, do I? But Jesus says, absolutely, you do. You need to be saved. You are trapped in darkness. You are needing rescue. You are hopeless. And I've come to rescue you. 
And that's the message of the text today that I want us to see, because you might find yourself in the same boat as Nicodemus saying, do I need to be rescued? I think I'm pretty good. I'm not so sure that I need this rescue you're talking about. But Jesus says to you, I want you to encounter me through belief and let me rescue you for all eternity. So that's the title of our our series that we're in right now is this idea of encountering Jesus, meeting with him and having an encounter with him. Last week, we talked about how Jesus encountered the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Today, we're going to talk about Nicodemus and the challenge today is to believe in Jesus. And then the next two weeks, we'll be looking at the paralytic and Peter. But the message today that Jesus gives to Nicodemus is believe in me. That's the invitation today is believe in him. Believe in him. You know, the guy Nicodemus that we're about to talk about, we actually don't know that much about him. Kind of like the people last week. They're only, he's only mentioned in just a handful places, a handful of places here in scripture. And yet Jesus gives him this really important message and we get to listen in. Uh, and then we'll see that Nicodemus actually ends up playing a major part in the fulfillment of scripture by the end of his life. So what I want us to do is I'm going to read these verses from John chapter 3. We're going to kind of go through it little by little. We're not going to read the whole passage all at once. We're going to go through it little by little and kind of just walk through what it looks like for for the message that, that Jesus gave to Nicodemus to believe in me, to trust me, to trust Jesus. So here's what we know about Nicodemus in John 3 verses 1 and 2. It says this, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher and you have come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So that's the introduction. That's about all the information we get on this guy named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, it says, was a member of the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin. So the Jewish people had their own ruling body. It was called the Sanhedrin. There were 70 elders in the Sanhedrin who ruled over kind of the civil and religious life of the nation of Israel, even under the rule of Rome. And so he was one of those very important rulers in the nation of Israel. And of course, that's a religious leader, a Pharisee. Now, if you've read the Gospels, or even if you haven't, you may have picked up on the fact that Pharisees are not usually the good guys in the gospel accounts. In fact, in the gospel of Matthew, uh, where we've been most of the spring, uh, Jesus has really harped on the Pharisees and said, you all are arrogant. You've been distorting the law. You've been manipulating people. You're more concerned with uh, being uh, doing the right things than having the right heart. Okay, so usually Pharisees do not have the right heart. Well, here we have a Pharisee who's actually asking some sincere questions. He's a religious leader, and he's really asking Jesus, what's going on with this? Who are you? He says, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. That's the dots he's connected so far. He says, Jesus, we're recognizing you're a teacher. You're not really one of us. Uh, You weren't trained like a Pharisee, but we still recognize that you're doing some great things. It says, these signs you've been doing. Well, what signs are we talking about? John, the Gospel of John, is actually a really amazing book. It goes through only a handful of Jesus' miracles. Uh, But John says at the very end of his book, Jesus did many other signs and wonders during his lifetime, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the book of John is all about believing in Jesus, and those signs and miracles are there to prove that he is the Son of God. 
Well, guess what? Nicodemus is not there yet, right? Nicodemus says, you're a great teacher. He doesn't say, you're the son of God. So he doesn't understand fully what's going on. In fact, when it says he came to him at night, uh, the Gospel of John does some amazing things here. But what, what I think one of the things John is saying is this guy is trapped in darkness. He doesn't see clearly who Jesus is yet. He sees partly, but not clearly. And so Jesus' explanation and Jesus' message right here in John 3 helps turn the lights on uh, for Nicodemus. And I hope it does that for us today. We have to sum up the entire message of this passage. This is the first point in your bulletin. Uh, the first point is this. Believe and you will be saved. Believe and you will be saved. That's the message of, of John in this part of his book. It's the message of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Believe in me, trust in me, and you will be saved. It's the message of the entire New Testament. More than that, it's actually the message of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. God says that the only way for you to be saved is if you believe in my son, Jesus Christ, and trust him with everything you have. So you might say, again, when you hear that word saved or salvation, right, that's a church word. And so I don't want to assume we all agree on what that means. I want us to think about that word today. What is salvation? If we're talking about being saved, what are we being saved from? Um, those soccer players in Thailand, they were saved from certain death. They would have either drowned or starved to death or something in that cave. And they were saved. We're saved from something even more dangerous, and that would be eternal death. Eternal death uh, and, and, and perishing, as we'll see in verse 16. So what I want us to do today is actually in your bulletin, you'll see this. There are five facts about salvation that Jesus gives us. And I think we are called in this passage to believe these five facts. I think it's important for us to believe the facts, right? If the news today tells you anything, it's important to know what the facts are and then believe the facts. Uh, and that's even more true when it comes to spiritual things. Jesus says, I want you to know these things about what it means to be saved, and I want you to believe them. So the first fact is this. Fact number one about salvation is this. Salvation, Jesus says, is a new birth, okay? Salvation is a new birth. So when someone is saved from sin, we're going to talk a little more about that later, but it is a new birth. One of the things I love about John 3 and about all of Jesus' teaching is that he gives us word pictures, pictures to help us understand what it is we're talking about. But what I also noticed here, we'll read these verses, is that he says salvation is a new birth. And that's this first picture he gives us, this picture of birth or a new birth. So read with me uh, in your Bibles, John chapter 3, uh, verse 3. It says this, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't say it's like being born again. He says, you're actually born again. Uh, now we're going to see Nicodemus has a hard time understanding what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, but born again, guess what? That's another one of those kind of church phrases, isn't it? In fact, uh, I would say probably 20 years ago, that phrase, born again, maybe 30 years ago, got kind of a bad reputation. People said, oh, I don't want to be called born again. In fact, I read one Christian author who said he was talking with a man, trying to share Christ with him. Uh, and the man said... Uh, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and everything. I'm just not a born-again Christian, uh, meaning he said, I don't like that label. And so 
the, the speaker said, well, excuse me, but I didn't realize there was any other kind. Okay. So even if that's a, a label that had some negative connotations attached to it somehow, this is the label that Jesus gives us. He says, you are born again. You are twice born. Phrase it however you want. You actually, if you know him, have been born twice. Salvation is a new birth. And so why would Jesus use this picture to talk to Nicodemus about what uh, salvation is? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why this picture? Well, you think about the idea of birth, right? There are very few things that every single human being has in common. One of them is birth, right? Every one of us was born. Every one of us in this room was born at some point. Another thing we're all going to have in common is every one of us will die. So Jesus brings this to light when he says, you, if you're a Christian, if you're a part of God's kingdom, you have also had a new birth. There's no other way about it. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've had a new birth. Something that all Christians have in common. Just like all humans have birth in common, all Christians have this new birth in common. There's one other thing about the birth of a child or or a new birth, right? I don't know anyone who doesn't get excited about a new birth uh, or about or any culture. Really, it's it's a it's something to be celebrated no matter where you live in this world is the idea of a new birth. The hope, the potential of a new life, it's something to celebrate. And so Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And it's something to get excited about. I want you to keep your finger in John chapter 3. We're going to flip over to Ephesians. The book of Ephesians really unpacks a lot of what John is talking about. So uh, so we're going to be flipping back and forth a little bit. And by the way, you know, I throw some verses up on the screen, but I would encourage you to have your Bible or use your phone if you have the Bible on your phone. We actually have some Bibles in the back if you want to pick one up on the way in. Um, but I would encourage you to look at this on your own. Don't just take my word for it. I want you to see the words of Scripture for your own uh, sake. And we want to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be there a lot today. So why this picture of new birth? Why is this new birth necessary? Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So Paul tells us that apart from Jesus, you are actually dead. And guess what? The only way to be made alive is to be born anew, to have a new birth. Skip down to Ephesians 2 verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. We'll get to the second half of that verse later. But it says, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that's why you need a new life. Now, this is one of those parts of the gospel. Really what we're talking about here is five facts, five truths about the gospel, the good news. This is not good news, is that we are all dead apart from God. That's bad news. If you don't know Jesus, you are dead spiritually, and you will be for all eternity. But thanks be to God, as Jesus tells us here in John 3, he gives us new birth, new life. Second Corinthians five seventeen is another verse I love. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold the, behold, the old has gone, the new has come. If you know Christ, you've been born anew. You are a brand new person. You might say it doesn't feel like it. 
but we've got more to say about that a little bit later. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, fact number one, salvation is new birth. Well, what does Nicodemus say? Nicodemus in verse four said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he's taking Jesus literally here. He's like, I don't understand this. What do you mean by born again? Which brings us to fact number two, and this is where Jesus goes next. And that is this. Salvation is supernatural. Okay? Salvation is supernatural. Now, supernatural is kind of a loaded term. What do we mean when we say salvation is supernatural? We mean it's miraculous and that it's a work of God. Okay? This is 100% a work of God. The only way you can be saved from the pit of sin is through the work of God. Just like those soccer players, the only way they could be saved from that deep, dark cave was by the rescuers who came to get them out. They had no hope on their own. But because the rescuer came, they were able to be delivered. So salvation is supernatural. Look at these verses, verses 5 through 12. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus makes it clear with Nicodemus. He says, you think we're having just kind of a physical conversation. I'm talking to you about spiritual truths that are going to impact you for all eternity. Nicodemus is a Jewish leader. And by default, any Jewish person person would say, I was born a Jew, therefore I'm part of God's people. And a lot of them believe that's what saves me. Because I'm Jewish, I'm saved. I'm good with God because I'm one of his chosen people. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, and actually Jesus' teaching throughout the New Testament is, that's not true. God's people are those who've come to him by faith alone. Old Testament and New Testament. And so he says it's only by faith. We are having a heavenly conversation here. Nicodemus was saying, how do I be born again? I'm already born a Jew. How could I be born any better? Jesus says, it's not about that. It's about a spiritual birth, a spiritual renewal in your heart. It's an inner reality. Salvation is supernatural. You saw a lot of discussion in there about the work of the Spirit, meaning this is God's Holy Spirit doing something inside our hearts, inside our souls. To save us. It's not a natural occurrence. Like a childbirth. Uh, Look at verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of this water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know, back in verse 3, it says you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now it says you can't even enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, unless you have this new birth, whatever this new birth is, You cannot be saved. Salvation is supernatural. What is interesting, though, is Jesus says in verse 7, Nicodemus, you shouldn't be surprised by this. Of all people, 
You're the teacher of Israel. You should have seen this coming. What's he getting at there? I think it goes back to that verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's this idea of him saying, Nicodemus is stuck in the here and now. Jesus says, I'm looking at not just the here and now, but eternity. I'm trying to tell you about something that will affect you forever, but it's an inward reality. It's what are you depending on in your heart to save you? And he says this is only going to be possible, this salvation. You can only be saved if there's a work of the Spirit in your life. If God does a work to cleanse you and save you. That's this whole discussion about the Spirit. There's actually a lot of debate in that verse 5 where it says, born of water and the Spirit. And people have written volumes about what's the water and what's the Spirit. Some people think it's baptism. Some people think it's speaking in tongues. There's all kinds of things out there. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, This shouldn't be hard for you to understand. You're the teacher of Israel. Meaning we need to look back at the Old Testament to say, what's he talking about when he's talking about a work of the Spirit? If you look at the prophets, Ezekiel um, and Joel, when they talk about the Spirit of God being outpoured on God's people, it brings new life. When the Spirit of God comes into the life of a person, it brings new life. And we see that most clearly in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes on believers forever. It's supernatural. It's the teaching of the Old Testament. The book of Joel, the prophet Joel, he talks about, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people, and their sons and daughters will prophesy. In other words, uh, God says uh, when the Messiah comes, when Jesus arrives, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on anyone who believes in him. He's going to do a work of salvation in their life, and they'll be the, never be the same. It's a supernatural thing whereby God comes into your life and cleanses you. It's a supernatural thing. I love it. There's another picture there given, I think, in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this picture of wind is another picture of this saving activity of God in your life. And what is Jesus saying about wind? I I got a picture up here on the screen of some windmills. Uh, And this is actually a really interesting picture because you have an old school windmill right next to one of these brand new wind uh, farms, uh, electricity generating wind farms. Um, I grew up with the old kind of windmill. We actually had some of these out in the cattle pastures um, to pump water out of wells to fill up the tanks for the cattle. Um, And it was great until the wind died down. (laughs) Then guess what? The cattle ran out of water. And we were always reminded, and I think the people who run these wind farms today are reminded, we know the wind is is real. We know it's powerful. We can't see it. We can see the effects of it. We're also reminded we can't control this. There's nothing we can do to make the wind blow when we want it to blow. That's up to God. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here in John chapter 3 when he talks about the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You can't control this. You can't manipulate God. You can't force him to save you. You can't make it happen on your own. In fact, you can't even see what he's doing. It blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. 
Salvation is a supernatural thing. And I think our takeaways from this would be, number one, is it's a powerful act of God. Okay? When we talk about salvation being supernatural, it's a powerful act of God. How much power does it take to save someone from hell and give them eternal life? It takes resurrection power. There's nothing else like it in the universe. Go back to Ephesians again. Chapter 1 this time. This talks about the power of God. Chapter 1 verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So listen to this this morning. If you have been saved, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in you. Salvation is a supernatural act of God's power. He's done great things in your heart. Flip over to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Salvation is supernatural. God's great power is at work in you if you've trusted Christ. If you haven't trusted Christ, his power can be at work in you. If all you, all you have to do is trust him. That brings us to fact number three about salvation. Salvation comes through believing. Salvation comes through believing. This is really the heart of our passage. Uh, we're going to do verses 13 through 15. We could really go all the way through verse 16 on this point. This is what it says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may also may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Salvation comes through believing. Now, what's going on in those verses? Again, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. He mentions, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. I've been reading through the Bible this year, and it was in the book of Numbers where this story happens. If you haven't ever read it, go find it in the book of Numbers. Uh, Basically, one more time, the children of Israel rebel against God, and they're disobeying him. And so God, as judgment, sends snakes into the camp, and they start biting people and killing them. Now, there's we could go into that whole story. But here's the bottom line. Moses prays for the people and he says, God, please save these people. And so God provides a way for them to be saved. Moses makes a a brass serpent. He puts it on a pole and they look to that thing that God has provided and they believe that God saves them. It's not that snake that saves them. They look at this thing that God provides. Anyone who looks at it, anyone who believes in God is saved. And Jesus says, just like that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, in Greek and Roman culture, actually we find out later in the book of John, that phrase, lifted up, a lot of times we think, oh, that means like, let's give him all the glory, right? Let's lift him up. It was also a phrase that was used to describe crucifixion. He'll be lifted up in execution. That was a phrase that literally was used at that time. Later in the book of John, Jesus makes it clear when he says, I think it's in either chapter 8 or chapter 12, I'm going to be lifted up. And his disciples understand, crucified? So must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
realize that this work of God cost Jesus everything. It cost him everything. He was lifted up and glorified through humiliation. In any other culture in the world, even in Roman culture, that would be the worst possible thing that could happen to you. Pretty much the worst possible thing. You'd be executed on a cross, one of the worst ways of dying. And Jesus says, I will do this. I'll be lifted up so that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Salvation comes through believing. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith or through belief. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation comes through believing. And not just believing in your head. What we're talking about here is trusting. Trusting that Jesus alone has paid the price for your sins. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you understand this. And not just understand it, unless you believe it. A lot of times when we think about the word believe, we think that means in my head I I agree with you. Jesus says, when we read the whole New Testament, we read the whole book of John, we're not just talking about agreeing with Jesus mentally. We're talking about trusting him completely. Putting everything all of our hopes, all of our dependence on him. Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. And that's what we have to believe in order to receive salvation. Which brings us to fact number four about salvation. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. John three sixteen through 18. Salvation is a gift. As you see, if it's a matter of what we deserve in life, Jesus tells us we deserve condemnation. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And guess what? All of us are sinners, therefore all of us deserve death. So Jesus says, guess what? I'm offering you a free gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son as a gift to save us. So that we would not perish. In other words, we get the opposite of what we deserve. Take a look at this picture. What is this? This is an Amazon box, right? Uh, Amazon, uh, a lot of times you order things on Amazon and uh, you get what you pay for. Um, but around Christmas time, a certain interesting thing happened to us. Like people would ship us Christmas presents that they paid for and it would just show up on our door. There's your Christmas present. Truly a gift. All we had to do is take that box off the front porch, open it up and use the gift that was inside. Truly a gift. You know, a lot of times we might think, well, let me pitch in and help pay for this gift. Uh, you know, you cover half of it, I'll cover the other half. But that's not the kind of gift that Jesus is talking about here. Just like Amazon says, we have it covered from A to Z. In an even greater way, Jesus says, I've covered everything from A to Z. There is not one little thing you can do to add to this gift. All you have to do is receive it. Jonathan Edwards said this. 
You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. That's the only thing you can contribute to salvation. And unfortunately, all of us have. So it's truly a gift. Salvation is a gift, and we receive it by believing. Remember, like I said, if you receive an Amazon box and it shows up on your front porch, you say, that is great. I'm so glad. I believe I got a gift. And you just kind of walk away and leave it there. It does you absolutely no good. So God says, I want you to receive it by faith. What is faith in Jesus Christ? This is from the Westminster Catechism. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. Love those words. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him. Some people would say, well, isn't believing an action? Don't you have to do something if you're believing? Believing is the opposite of acting. It's actually saying there's nothing more I can do. And I rest in the work of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you told him, I rest in you alone. I trust you alone to save me. That's what trusting is. Salvation is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 again. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works so that no one can boast. And then number five, fact number five is that salvation is a transformation. Salvation is a transformation. John three nineteen through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Salvation is transformation from darkness to light, from death to life. That's what it is. Jesus tells us, that's what I came to do, to set you free from darkness. Think about it. Nicodemus came to him in the dark. And Jesus says, let me open your eyes so you can see that I am the one who is sent to save you. We were born in darkness, but we've been raised into the light of life. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and I want you to come and walk in my light. And you do that by, you begin doing that by trusting him. Salvation is transformation. You know, Nicodemus is an example of this. Let me read one more part from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10 says this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus says that when I save you, you are set free from darkness. And now you can walk in the light. Nicodemus himself is an example of this. We know later in life that he, uh, we believe he actually placed his faith in Christ because of what he did. At the very end of the Gospel of John, uh, we have the story of Jesus being crucified. And on the end of that day, that terrible day, that good Friday, they said that Jesus was dead on the cross. And listen to these verses, John nineteen thirty-eight and 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea 
who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for few of the Jews, fear of the Jews, asked Pilate so that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So what we see at the end of the Gospel of John, later in Nicodemus's life, is we see that he plays actually a key role in salvation history, right? He helps bury the Son of God who's died on the cross. And he does that, I believe, uh, because he has faith in Christ. I think this message from Jesus, from John 3, has sunk into him so much that he's willing to stick his neck out and say, I'm here to bury my Savior. But as we know, the darkness of the grave was transformed to the light of the resurrection. And that's the same thing that happens in your heart. You are dead in your sins, but when you trust Jesus, you are resurrected into a new birth and a newness of life, transformed by the light of the resurrection. Nicodemus literally played a role in that process. But when we boil it all down to one phrase today, it would be this. Believe in him and you will be saved. All of this transformation for Nicodemus, for you, for me, is made possible because of Jesus. This salvation is possible because of him. Jesus says to you, believe in me and you will be saved. So that's our challenge this morning is have you believed in him? If you've never done that, if you've never told him, I trust you, do that. Be born again. If it's something you've done a long time ago, short time ago, continue to encounter him and walk in faith with him. So we know faith leads to faithfulness. But that's the invitation is believe in him, trust him, put your faith in him, and you will be saved for all eternity. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died to save us. God, I thank you for giving him as a free gift. I pray, Lord, that anyone here who has not received him would do that today. It's in his name we pray. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.